Good morning. My name is Hans Kuttner. I'm a senior fellow here at Hudson Institute. It's a pleasure to welcome you here today for the release of a Hudson paper, The Economic Impact of Rural Broadband. Welcome to the, uh, Helmut, the Wally Stern uh, Conference Center. It's a brand new space here for Hudson. It's my first event up here. I hope I don't fall off the stage in my first appearance on this stage. And um, we're going to have a presentation of paper and a lovely panel discussion, which Jessica Golden will now introduce. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. It's so wonderful to see so many of our familiar faces in the room, so thank you for being here. As Hans said, my name is Jessica Golden, and I'm the Executive Director of NTCA's Foundation for Rural Service. So today we're here for the exciting release of Economic Impact of Rural Broadband. And FRS, the Foundation for Rural Service, at our core, seeks to sustain and enhance the quality of life in America by advancing an understanding of rural issues. And our vision is that we seek to harness the power of the communications industry to enrich lives in America. And now why do I keep saying just America and not rural America? Well, because we believe that this is a national issue, that investing in our rural communities is not just a rural issue, but it's a national imperative. So today we're here to discuss these issues, and we have an incredible panel, and to discuss the release of this, this wonderful paper that talks about the economic impact of rural broadband. So our three panelists today I'll, I'll uh, introduce by name, and then we'll have Hans come up here and, and do an overview of the paper and then introduce the panelists again. So our panelists that we have with us today are Nancy White, CEO and General Manager of NCTC in Lafette, Tennessee, and we've got Leo Starlakis, who's Executive VP and Chair of JSI, and Dusty Johnson, who's VP of um, Vantage Point, VP of VP. So thank you all so much for being here today. And we also are lucky enough to have Shirley Bloomfield, who's the CEO of NTCA, the Rural Broadband Association, um, the, the, the umbrella arm of what of the, the Foundation for Rural Service is part of. So, will be part of the panel, but ask a few questions and then summarize the event at the end. So thank you all so much for being here today. Please think of questions to ask because we're all about engaging on these issues. Um, hopefully this will be a kickoff into a larger discussion that we can continue down the, the, the road. Um, we have a lot of um, important topics to cover today. So thank you again for being here. And Hans, I'll invite you back up. Well, I have a bunch of dry facts. Uh, I'll try to get through the dry facts as fast as I, I can, although sometimes I'm told that I do that by speaking too fast. I hope not to do that today. Um, the paper is, this event is being webcast, and the webcast will be archived on the uh, Hudson website. And if you happen to be, uh, you're, if you're in the room and you're a little shy about putting your hand up or want to raise something without you being identified as a source of it, please um, tweet the question to our Twitter handle, Hudson Events, or if you're observing the, uh, the webcast, um, we invite you to participate even though you're not here in the room with us today via the Twitter feed. So a quick summary is that we, we say in this report that the economic impact of the rural broadband industry is $24.2 billion in 2015, that the industry supports both through its own employment and the economic activity that it supports, 69,600 jobs, that a larger share of this economic impact winds up 
in urban areas than rural areas. And that has to do with the nature of the products that are being bought and the uh, way the economy, our economy works, which is that primary production happens more in, in the rural areas and that the kind of goods and services that those that are being bought are going to come more likely from uh, urban areas. And we find that the rural broadband sector supports over $100 billion in e-commerce uh, per year. So, um, well, how does it do this? Well, we carry out this accounting exercise that we report on in the report. You say, okay, well, how much, how big is this industry? And we say that it is, it's direct impact. That is to say the goods and services it accounts for are $17.2 billion 2015. Now, um, there are, this is, as I say, this is the accounting exercise where we go through and we want to take, okay, what's the economic pie in this country? We would divide it out and we say the rural broadband sector gets this share of, of, of the pie. It's not the, um, uh, it's not the, all the kind of things that it makes possible. So what's the value to the economy of the fact that someone uh, can use the broadband service to um, engage in some other activity? that they can engage, that there could be some telehealth visit that happens via broadband? Or what's the value to the economy of the fact that uh, the transformation of agriculture into assist, uh, using cyber mechanical systems, what we used to call tractors, but now have um, GPS heavily embedded in them kind of thing, what's the value to the agricultural sector of the fact that they can use rural broadband as an input in that thing? That's not what we're doing with arriving at that number. We're saying, we're just saying it's as any other industry as we look at it and say, okay, what do you buy? How much, how many dollars are there that are run through your firm as the expenses of this? And if we follow that out, say for the course of a year, what's the impact on the economy overall? So it, again, it's, try, it's that notion of what is the slice of the pie? And that's a $24.2 billion slice of the pie. Um, and I was looking for some way, as I th thought about that, I thought, you know, that just, what does that tell me? I, I'm, I'm looking for some way to try to motivate this, to explain this kind of thing. Um, you know, it, it's $24.2 billion is more than I can imagine. It's more than most people can imagine. It's why people buy um, uh, lottery jackpot tickets because it's numbers beyond what they can actually get their mind around kind of thing. And so I look for some way to try to motivate this, to explain this, to say, how does this relate to something? something? And I uh, thought of the idea of, of sort of, let's compare this to the economies of particular states where I said, okay, we rank order the states according to their gross state product, and the smallest one turns out to be Vermont. And we can say that the rural broadband industry is um, about 80% um, the size of Vermont's economy. That, if, that's, you know, if that sort of gives you something a little more concrete to motivate around, or, or half the size of Montana's. I don't know whether that's any better than just sort of my sort of just saying a number and trying to get it, but I thought of that as a way that could help motivate trying what we understand here. Well, what we see that's going on here is part of the transition from telephone to broadband. We did a, a report, a similar report uh, in 2011 using data from uh, 2009. And in that report, we found that uh, we said, said that, okay, we got this data about costs that are reported uh, in through the uh, the in to support the universal service fund mechanism and what's the relationship between those and the total expenses and for that particular report we had um, said okay the best that we could come up with that point was data from a survey of firms in Kansas and we found that the 
total expenses were 1.3 times as much as their regulated expenses. Now, going back to this, we want to come up with, with more better, more, newer data. And thanks to um, JSI, we uh, came up, they were able to share with us some aggregated data from their um, proprietary database where we learned that the total expenses were 1.98 times the size of regulated expenses. So clearly, while the size of the regulated sector is declining, the total sales of this uh, uh, sector, rural broadband, are growing. Why? It's, it's, it's that whole process of, of creative destruction going on in the economy that landline as a service is um, a declining share. It's a, and, but it doesn't mean that because this goes away uh, that, that the economy loses out. No, no, no. We've got something new coming along, broadband, which turns out to be a, a uh, device that allows sales to be a lot more. And so what we're talking about, while we still sort of have a system that sort of and for this accounting purpose, sort of classifies these as being um, telecommunications companies. We've got a lot more things that are being sold by them. We've got video services. We and, and plain old telephone service are a declining share of what's available. And I really hope that when our, our panel discussion, we get at this about what are the additional things that are being sold that helps us get understand why is it the case that um, uh, the to the regulated side. The regulated dollars in the industry are declining, but the industry itself uh, is growing. And I think that's what it is. It's, it's this, this process which is, um, in some ways, the genius of the American economy, uh, that we have this process of creative destruction, and that, um, that the same firm can be observed at different points in time, selling one thing at one point in time and a very different and broader, more diverse, rich sense, sets of goods of services than they, they once did. Then we asked the question, well, where does this impact uh, wind up? And the striking thing to us was in our, our modeling was to set, find out that uh, that the dollars that are flowing through this uh, through the rural broadband sector um, have a larger impact. About two thirds of their impact are in the urban area, and one third in rural areas. And that has to do with again where are goods and services being produced that. Um, the rural economies tend to be more specialized and specialized in uh, narrow segments of, of things. What else, where it has a near monopoly on, on food production. And so to get this more diverse kind of things, in general, you've got to engage in trade. That's the whole notion of, of why people engage in trade, whether it's the tra trade between one country and that country, or if you imagine the US economy sort of being two economies, an urban economy and a rural economy, and you, and you want to say, OK, how is it that these two economies interact using that same kind of model of sort of two countries, two uh, countries within the US, one urban, rural. And that in the telecom sector, a um, in the rural broadband sector, two-thirds of this economic impact is winding up in the urban uh, economy. Now, one thing we thought was also important to think about is um, rural broadband and e-commerce, because that is an important kind of uh, sector of the economy. And, and, we, and there's this notion out there that it's, it's, it's what's growing, and therefore it's, it's what's shiny, and, that's, and what, it's what's new, and we should be giving more attention to that. And so we try to um, say, okay, let's take what we know about um, the size of e-commerce and back that out and ask how, what share of this is being supported by rural broadband. And what we find in this area is that overall, more than $100 billion in e-commerce relies on services that come from rural broadband providers. Um, and the largest amount in this is manufacturing. Now, just to, just to sort of 
uh, put a little caveat on that. Before, we were saying, uh, we were talking about the direct impact on the, the economy. And when we did this accounting exercise and did the, the pie kind of thing. Now, this is, this is separate from that. This is just asking what share of the, um, of, of e-commerce takes place and involves, uh, rural broadband. Um, we're not giving credit to this. We're not saying the economy would be $100 billion smaller if it wasn't, if the rural uh, broadband sector disappeared tomorrow. But it's a, it's a way, a, a metric that helps you understand that there are a lot of actors out there in the economy who are looking to, uh, uh, rural broad broadband carriers for the services that they need so that they can be doing what they're doing. It's not that um, these dollars would necessarily disappear if tomorrow we could press a switch and make the rural broadband sector disappear. Probably more likely thing would be that these this is determining, helping determine the location of where these service, these activities take place. And we have in the report an example of how there's a um, a window manufacturer that built a facility to manufacture windows because there was rural broadband, uh, broadband available from a rural carrier, and that's why that community was acceptable for, for them, why they would go there. Um, if it wasn't going, if that company town didn't have it, they would probably wind up another one, because they had 50 different places they were looking at. There probably would have been a different rural broadband carrier that would have been responsible for that economic, economic activity. And of the retail sales that involve um, online commerce, e-commerce, we say that about 9.2 billion of those are handled through rural broadband carriers. And then try to say, and this is the, the more difficult part, well, gosh, what if, the what if of what if um, everybody had equally robust um, networks available to them, would there be more e-commerce? Yes, there would be. Although, the, and we come up with a number of $1 billion being very conservatively today is a lower bound on this missed opportunity in e-commerce. It's hard to know, though, because um, while it's pretty clear uh, about the importance of, of speed for video delivery, maybe this would still be happening. Um, what's the lowest speed that people are willing to go and still use um, a website to purchase something on, online? That's, that's a, a harder kind of question. But this, is, I think, helps us get our, our minds around these numbers. And then finally, looking forward. Looking forward is um, almost scary in a way because it's so uncertain. Uh, we've got, we know a lot about um, what we've seen so far. What we've seen so far is substitution, where we've had, you know, email takes the place of, 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 of postal mail. This is the problem of the, of the U.S. Postal Service. Um, streaming video takes the place of DVDs, that you don't need to go to a physical store to pick up a DVD. Um, you can sort of just get, get this thing provided to you, but it's, it's one for one. You used to do it one way, now you do it in another way. Well, and there's still more room for substitution um, that you do an e-visit with, with a physician rather than a going to the doctor's office. That might involve going to a clinic near you kind of thing. And, the, and you're, rather than seeing your, your internist, you're now seeing a specialist who's in another place. And there's some video exchange there. And the um, uh, x-rays or the other images are being viewed kind of thing. That's a very kind of thing. But um, there's, what does this mean as far as what is it? Healthcare services sort of dissolve the lines. It's sort of not so much focused on visit, but maybe more a notion of health maintenance where there are um, observations which are either passively uh, uh, gathered about you. For example, um, there are uh, efforts with um, monitoring older people that, that have said, well, we can look at, uh, we install a padding in, in houses and 
determine, okay, the person stops moving around as much. This is a sign there's some gait change, that there's something happening, or that they're um, not uh, actively submitting, that kind of blood pressure kind of results. And that the notion of what is a healthcare service is very different than the model of a healthcare service is you go and you have a, a short, intermediate, or a longer visit with, with, with a doctor kind of thing. So this is the kind of like the uncertainty of, um, of what is it that's going to be involved in the substitution. And then finally, there's this question of what are the new categories going to be? We've, um, uh, we've sort of could time travel back a generation ago, and I was just standing here and start talking about social media. Um, no one would know what I was talking about, but clearly now we all know about social media. Well, let's time travel now, not backwards, but forwards, and ask uh, a generation out. Um, it's just as possible that there are categories that would be discussed if we were to be time travel to the same room 20 years from now and be talking about what are the kind of services, what are the kind of um, interactions that people are having. They're going to involve categories that we don't know about. And that's one of the things that I think will be fun to hear what our, our, our panel has to, to say on that. So. Let me then, um, uh, without further ado, to say that we've got our, our uh, Twitter feed available here, if, if either from the room or from the webcast, you'd like to join and send the questions on to us. And now let me invite the panel to come up so we can have a, a discussion to go beyond the kind of the, the, the dry numbers to some real good stories. We're one short. You're, then you're here. <laughs> because we wind up with boy girl. Oh, oh. nicely done. Wow. The right. <laughs> natural order. Who knew? <laughs> well, um, just to, just to, I'll, to get things going. Um, let me let's turn to Nancy White because you have the most on the ground experience. Um, you probably have actually taken a customer service call from somebody who wants to know about about service. Um, you deal with real people every day in, uh, who are served by a rural co-op. And um, so just tell us about what this is like. You know, give us, you know, we just use this phrase, rural co-op, but, but what is a rural co-op and what's it like out there and, what, and what, who are the people you serve? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> okay. So who are the people that I serve and what do we do? Is that? Well, yeah, yeah, just give us an example of what, what's it like if, we, if I was to drive down the road with you in, in the, your service territory, what would I be seeing? You'd see about... Oh, somewhere between seven and eight houses per mile. You see lots of pretty green trees and hills and uh, lots of open space, farms, um, two-lane roads, uh, small town here and there, uh, very rural. I mean, we're 50 miles from Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, we're at the, the border of Kentucky and Tennessee. We're 50 miles southeast of Bowling Green, Kentucky. And uh, you would think that just 50 miles from a city like that, that we're probably pretty, getting to be kind of a, a bedroom community. Well, we're not. We're very rural. It's, uh, a, like I said, a two-lane road to get there. And when you get there, you find that they're really, um, if, if you're going at 6 o'clock in the morning, you'll see that there's a line of traffic leaving town going to work in another place because our factories have gone and closed over the years. And if you come home at, if you're trying to get there at 6 o'clock at night, you'll be stuck in a traffic jam all the way from Nashville to Lafayette. So uh, it's, it's a very rural area where people who have jobs have to drive somewhere else to go to work for the most part. In the biggest town? Lafayette, Tennessee. And I know most states say Lafayette, but in our state it is Lafayette, Tennessee. And um, Population? Population of Lafayette is about 4,000. Um, and... 
that's the sort of the, the, the fine on the ground, but um, let's jump to the other end and to, or just get a sense of the, um, go back to not 30,000, but the, 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 NAS, the NASA geostat image. And, and Leo, what can you tell us? You've been out and you've seen everything from very small to very big, but give us some sort of sense of this range that we're looking at. We try to pull everything together under the banner of rural. Um, there are some lobster islands off the coast of Maine that during the summer you'll have 20 people on the island, and that's being served by a rural telephone company. Uh, you have some ILEX, uh, rural telephone companies, that are 100,000. 100, so, I mean, the range is the range. I mean, it's, it's, you know, you have to go back to our history as telephone providers. We served areas no one else would serve. That includes extremely remote areas that takes forever to get to. You don't know why anyone would want to live there, but they do. And we have an obligation to provide service. I mean, they're providing a vital service to the area that they live in. And Dusty, um, this is an area with a lot of, of, of regulation, and you have been a regulator. I'm which, so sorry. I know. I apologize. Because <laughs> we have no problem bringing up people here with checkered pasts and putting yes. them uh, in yeah. front of groups here. But. Um, what can you tell us about the regulatory landscape that is going to be part of this? Because clearly what we talked about is uh, you know, the past, which was created out of a particular regulatory framework. And, and I hinted at the end that you know, there's a lot of possibilities out there. But again, it's going to, a lot of it's going to depend on how this same regulatory and, and framework and environment evolves. Yeah, I will apologize for being a former regulator. I uh, spent six years on the South Dakota Public Utilities Commission, and we did some Capitol Hill visits yesterday as part of the great NTCA event. And uh, I was talking to a senator who was on a Commerce Committee, and he said, gosh, Dusty, former regulator and cost consultant, what is your more detestable title, right? Uh, and I said, well, those aren't labels I, I love, Senator, but it's even worse yet. I'm also a Republican, so very unpopular. Uh, but... I'll say this. I think a report like this, Hans, is so powerful because it can speak to regulators and other policymakers. I was also a chief of staff to a governor for four years. And there are really there are three types of policymakers, right? Those who love data, and you've given us real data about the economic impact. And I think that's going to be persuasive. Now, you've got a different set of policymakers that, of course, love stories. And you've included some great stories in here, right? We've got stories about Nancy's company. We've got stories about Premier, about Perry Spencer. These are progressive companies that are making lives better. I think those stories are persuasive. And then finally, I think you've got a certain number of policymakers that are just influenced by politics, right? Well, the bottom line is everybody. I don't, it almost doesn't matter where you're at on the political spectrum. You care about jobs. You care about economic vitality. And, and, and this talks about that. I mean, this is good politics, right? And so uh, for all of us, I think, as we look, how do we tell the rural broadband story? This is a good blueprint. We've got to bring data, we've got to bring stories, and we've got to bring politics to bear, uh, because I think uh, the future is going to be a lot sunnier than the past if we do it right. So Hans, can I jump in? Because I think yeah. what Dusty raises is a great question. So as I was reading this, and you can't help but you know, turn on the television and watch you know, the primaries and all the election fuss. I look at this and I think, to your point, um, okay, so now you've got this tool. How does that get used? How do we plug that in to what is going on right now in this country? You know, so divisive about so many things, and yet is this one area that folks can, you know, 
agree upon um, and how do we use that? So I'm just kind of curious as you all have been looking at it thinking, what do I do? How do I take this home? How do I, how do I share this with policymakers in a, um, in a political environment? Just curious well, if anybody saw Well, I'll, I'll say, you know, broadband is the great enabler. You know, we no longer have market lines that are defined by jurisdictional boundaries for certificated areas or state boundaries. I mean, you can serve anybody anywhere as long as they have a broadband connection. So the, the quilt company in, in Missouri that's, that's, you know, far, far away from a metropolitan area still can sell in the state, in the United States, and 40% of their, of their uh, this is a client's customer, 40% of their sales are international, all because of that broadband connection. So it encourages people to go to where it makes sense to find reasonable housing, reasonable resources for staffing, low cost, you know, high enriched, enriched education. It's the enabler. It allows us to take, take, take barriers down and still survive. I want to follow up on that one, Leo, because that to me was in trying to, you know, I understand or trying to understand the, the biggest change we saw 2009 to uh, to 2015 in looking at the data was just how much more there is than, than regulated service. And um, this whole idea of international um, is beyond my ability to understand. So wh who, are, who are they selling to internationally? I can give an example. Oh, great. Uh, I have a customer who's in Scottsville, Kentucky in my service area, and I got a call from their president um, a few months ago, and he was furious because his, he had not been receiving a call. His customer from Brazil, who was calling to give him a $2 million order, had tried to reach him all afternoon and couldn't get anyone to answer the phone. And he called him on his cell phone and said, you know, why aren't you answering the phone? I, I can't believe you don't have anyone answering your phone. He goes, well, she's sitting right here. We have a receptionist that answers all the calls. He said, we didn't, we didn't get a call. So his issue was, I have a $2 million order that didn't come because for some reason you didn't deliver the call to me. And it was one of the issues that we fight on Capitol Hill all the time is this call completion where for whatever reason, whether it's a, um, a least cost dialer that one of the large companies is using or a small company is using, for some reason the call is not delivered to me and therefore I don't deliver it to the customer. So he has a customer in Brazil, here we are in Scottsville, Kentucky, which is the middle of nowhere, really. I mean, we love it, but it's, we're, we're very far removed from anything. And he's selling to a company. He makes uh, all the stainless steel things for chef's kitchens and, and for all kinds of, of, of commercial uses of, of stainless steel. And he was furious. I mean, it was, it's like, if I can't get broad, if I get, can't get a phone call and my orders are coming in across the Internet, but he's trying to call me and tell me that I have one coming, then what's going on? I wonder, does this say the problem of uh, people understanding, you know, too much of our mindset? There are too many. Too, there are just too many. There aren't enough young people out there yet, who, um, and even young people probably don't have this idea of there's not just the phone company, where the assumption was probably on that person's, uh, the person in Brazil, that there was the phone company and the phone, the phone company, singular, mm -hmm. unitary entity, mm -hmm. um, which was sort of seamlessly connected me to you, or maybe once it got out of Brazil, got it all the way to you, kind of thing. That's right. Was what responsible. They don't think and, about how many steps there are in the process. That's right. How many other companies are involved? Is that what you're? you're yeah, right. And, and that, um, uh, but of course, that's going to be, uh, it's, you know, the, um, I once heard a, a preacher who sort of tried to explain prayer by the same way she understood is that you got to understand it's like the telephone service, which is you don't know quite now how it works. All you know is that when you pick it up, you get dial tone kind of thing. And it's that kind of uh, problem of um, 
that's always going to be a problem when you're when you're trying to be customer facing, which is you've got to accommodate the limitations of what the what, what the customer knows or doesn't know. You know, yeah. it probably has lots more examples. It's a world economy, and you know who's the customer. A manufacturing facility in Brazil wants to do business with someone in Kentucky or any place in the United States. They don't necessarily want to build physical facilities, but they want to have, be able to transport data, provide a service, and have that connectivity that allows them to do it anywhere around the world. And the data and that connectivity and everything that's been used for is really the product. It's, it's not the voice connection between the Brazil person and the Scottsdale, Kentucky person. It's what they're trying to do over that, that relationship. And that's really the value of the network, and we provide that last piece of the network. I think you uh, had an example that you were sharing with me earlier about um, data centers and, and what, what's happening in that world, which struck me as sort of like, gosh, before you mentioned it, that was something I, I hadn't thought about, which is, yes, you can be so physically remote from who you might think is being the, the user, but that this is an opportunity, again, in that sort of thing of what we've been observing of um, the regulated sales are just a, are a shrinking share of what they're offering. Could you have some examples you can help us to understand what's going on in that set world? Yeah, anybody in here who has a data center, and Nancy has a data center, you know, a, a portion of your sales are international. Um, usually 20 to 30 to 40 percent of your sales are international. And the reason and, international and that means that that's sort of like um, I'm a, a, because this is something I want to have to serve my American customers. You, you or, have a um, company in Brazil who wants to host data close to the market they're trying to penetrate or serve. So they're going to pay Nancy to host their data in her data center because they want to be near the, the, the customers in Kentucky or wherever she's serving. And people pay for that. Um, now, there is there's a little bit of disruption with currency fluctuations, but you know they want to be close to where their customers are, and so they pay a hosting company, a data center, in a specific area to host that data, um, as well as other companies around the United States, but international is a big piece of that. How far back do we have to go where we say, you know, that? That didn't exist, and we wouldn't have had to have talked about that as one of the things that we evoked to explain. Yeah, certainly, certainly, probably, you know, within the last ten years, that's been. Well, and I think to, to piggyback on that and to double back to Shirley's question, you know, how do we tell the story? I mean, part of the story really is that rural broadband is great, right? But I, when we're out doing advocacy, I think we always need to take the extra step, which is to explain how did that happen. Right? I mean, when I talk to you know, school groups and I tell them, when I graduated high school, I'd never sent an email, I'd never spoken uh, on a cell phone, I'd never been on the World Wide Web. I mean, these kids and they think, think I am that's a thousand years old, right? Yeah, you, are you my grandma's age? But right. the reality is that so much of this progress has happened very quickly. I mean, Leo's right. It's in the last 10 years when it's really started to become full and robust. That didn't happen by accident. That's powered by innovation. That's powered by infrastructure. And that stuff is not building its stuff, it, it, it building itself. And uh, that takes money, and it takes, you know, frankly, a stability within the regulatory framework so people like the NC can go make the investments that are going to power that progress. Now, Dusty, to follow up, uh, now, in addition to the checkered party you were passed as a regulator, you also um, worked as a chief of staff for a governor. And that's not, that, I mean, that's even more checkered. That's really. even more checkered. Oh, I, I thought we were trying to, to yeah. save you. Now yeah, you're sort right. of, it's yeah. further in the other direction. Well, then, okay, well, sorry about that. I didn't mean to uh, <laughs> further reduce you in our eyes. But um, <laughs> you, in that. But uh, so there you are. Uh, you know, a governor is also these days a chief economic development officer for the uh, for the for the state. Um, 
you have anything to share with us, some stories and experiences you've had about where um, uh, broadband uh, network capability has um, made something happen or made it happen in site place A or place B kind of thing? Or, or how do you think about that? Or is, is um, that ever come into play as uh, where people are deciding to go? Or is it the thing where, um, you know, is Leo got our mind around the idea that, well, you know, you can be in Brazil but have a, a data center uh, anywhere? How does, how does that sort of, if you're going to be talking to governors as chief economic development officers, what do you have to say about this? Yeah, I, there's, you know, and you could kind of alluded to it earlier, there's this idea that, oh, gosh, young people don't want to be in rural. And I just, I, I, I strongly reject that. I mean, for a long time, you know, to, to seize the kind of economic opportunity they wanted, they felt like they needed to leave rural. They didn't necessarily want to, right? They almost felt like it was an economic imperative to do that. But all of this infrastructure and this innovation is tearing down that barrier. And there are all kinds of very rural counties in this country that are growing, that are seeing, you know, a population population influx now, not everywhere, but those communities that can provide the quality of life that young people want and who can provide an opportunity to do the kind of work they want are going to have a future in this country. And, uh, you know, frankly, I think we all know one of the biggest barriers to getting young people to move to rural is that anymore you don't need to find one good job for a family, you need to find two. And so even if he or she can find a good job, the other spouse can't. And, you know, if she can continue to work for, uh, you know, her consulting company out of Manhattan uh, and live in uh, Manhattan, Kansas, that is going to make it that much easier for them to go live in the community they want to live in. And, and I think a lot of governors realize that, which is why you see more and more states begin to have broadband as a central policy item uh, that they're moving forward on. And, and Shirley, how does this fit in with what you're trying to is, uh, the worlds that you're trying to engage. Is, is it going well? Is, is, is Dusty sort of um, uh, unique, or is he sort of, uh, no, no, they're all, they, all the governors are getting it He's now. spot on. And actually, as I just look around this room, it's an interesting combination of I see a lot of folks who actually have been um, friends of rural, folks who've really kind of, um, you know, agriculture groups and library groups and folks who really are, are very vested in the economic health of the communities that they live in. And I think it's the perfect marriage with the rest of uh, some of the faces around this room who are, who are broadband providers, who are folks who, who actually have a vested interest in making sure that their communities grow. And I do think that we're seeing nationwide this initiative across the country on a state and local level and as well as a federal level. I think when the FCC recently went through their um, universal service reform process, the idea, the focus was very much on how do we continue to build infrastructure out into these rural communities that are very high cost to serve? How do you sustain those networks? And how do you hit some of those unserved areas, um, which is you know kind of that last piece, which is the expensive piece, um, but it is the important piece to, to get to Dusty's point of how do you keep your young people? How do you do, you know, I had the opportunity to visit Nancy recently with an FCC commissioner and, and showing off your telehealth capabilities. And when you think about, you know, if you've got a young family that's moving in, um, you're going to want health care. You're going to have education access. You're going to want to have access to, to libraries and, and what role does agriculture play? So at the bottom of all of that right now, I think, you know, the basis of some of this rural economy is access to a robust network. Work. Um, and I think all those pieces kind of come together, and I think folks are getting it. Now, for happy side of that story, we've got Nancy, who, as I understand it, you've got plans to have fiber throughout your service area. Is, is that true? That's correct. We were lucky enough to have a bit, uh, stimulus project and built fiber to oh, 75% of our service area, and then we have borrowed money 
to go after the rest of it where we need it. And we, when you, five years ago, six years ago, when we applied for the stimulus project, uh, 20 meg was all they asked for us to do. And you know, we can do 20 meg on copper, but our customers want more than that. We're seeing our customers are going, we sell synchronous now, we sell 30-30 or 50-50 or 100-100. Uh, my CSRs are amazed and they're having such a good time because we've lowered our price on 100 by 100 by, I don't know, $50. And they're having such a great time talking to customers, saying, well, you only have 6-1 right now. We could sell you 100-100. <laughs> and how many people are buying it and using it, calling back and going, I'm so glad I did that because I have kids that are using, watch, we're watching Netflix, and we have three iPads going on and two computers and six phones. And so they really love the higher speeds, and they're coming back to us and saying, you know, my, my brother bought a higher speed, and so we really want to do the same thing. It's it's, so, it's, it's we're finding that there's a real need for 10-1 is good. That's what the FCC is saying we should provide to people who live in our kinds of areas. Um, and that if you live in the city, you need 25-3. But I'm finding in my service area that people want more than that. So we're looking at how can we build out the rest of it as customers need it uh, in fiber, if fiber is required. And so we're going to put you down as being a happy face kind I'm of a happy story. happy face, yes. But <laughs> I want to ask Leo about... Um, uh, to help us understand I'm that and the national. I guess I am. Well, no, to, to grumpy ask him, Leo. I'm the grumpy one, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, the, I'm the ghost of reality. That's, that's right. Well, I, I want to know. I want to ask Leo. Are there some? Um, uh, to what extent is it all going to be happy face stories where where that where Nancy uh, where there's a a provider headed by Nancy who says a she has goodwill, b she wants to serve people, and c she has access to capital. Um, where is it that, you know, people who provide capital are not, oh gosh, it's really nice, you know, we're gonna loan you the money because we like you. We're gonna loan you the money because we think you're gonna pay it back. Um, and so what's the ratio to happy face to not maybe sort of least other faces? Uh, or or, or, or where, 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 where will the happy faces run at? Shirley's just beaming me now saying, don't do it, don't go there. Oh. Um, the reality is, as all industries, we will have consolidation. You know, you need customers, and you need a network, and you need the economic incentives to build a network. Now, part of the economic incentives have been pulled away from us with reform, and continue to do so, access reform, USF reform, um, and we have to change our business model. There are companies, though, that just because of their geographic area, their proximity to uh, population centers, they haven't made the infrastructure investments they need to, they're likely going to have to consolidate to become a bigger pool of, of resources so they can leverage everything. Capital has become very tough for the same reason you said. Companies, they're very picky about wanting to get paid back. Uh, lenders and the ability to get paid back on the business model is completely different than it was 20 years ago. Um, most of the lenders have retracted to if it, unless you show me a growth business model and one, let's define lenders. There is the RUS, which uh, has done a wonderful job throughout the history of our industry providing capital. And it just get, for people who may not be familiar. One or two sentences. Under there. the Department of Agriculture, there's a rural utility service which uh, its mandate is to provide uh, funding for growth in rural markets for utilities, whether it's power, whether it's water and sewer, uh, whether it's uh, uh, telephone. And so they've provided money throughout the years. This, the budget this year is $690 million. Um, and, and so it's there. And they 
their return expectations are probably a little bit different than the quasi-commercial banks, the co-banks and the RTFCs, which are under the farm credit system. But, you know, they want to see a story of growth. They want to see a story of survival. Uh, if you're going to stay in the same legacy business that you're in today and want to borrow $20 million to upgrade your network infrastructure, but you're not going to add any new revenue sources, any new customers, you're essentially just replacing what you have there, it's going to be hard to get that money. Uh, commercial banks, you know, I, I doubt there's too many out there that would lend you that money either. So you have to tell a good story. You have to look for your opportunities. And what I was going to say earlier is, uh, you know, it, the, the value is in the network, no doubt. You have to have a robust network. But the value, the secret sauce, is in the applications that you sell over that network. Um, the, the telemedicine, the distributive uh, uh, high-value high broadband services, those are what people want to pay for. Um, it's the Microsoft versus the IBM debate. You know, who's more valuable now, Microsoft or IBM? IBM was the application, was the hardware, the network. Microsoft was the applications. That's where the value is. That's where people will pay for. And the one, and I said this at a conference last week, um, one of the things that we don't realize is how valuable our distributed model is to people that want to sell stuff in our markets. When they know that you have a high-speed network that can touch a certain sector of a population, whatever the numbers are, they know that's a distributed model that they can sell services to over your robust network, and they will pay you for that. They will compensate you for that. So those are the things we need to look at. There's plenty of opportunity out there. So can I ask Dust, um, Dusty and, and Leo a question on that? Then you get to the adoption issue, right? So you've got, you know, you've got the network, and now you've got these applications that you're selling. We still struggle, I think, in rural America to see the adoption numbers that you see in urban America. And I just am curious if either of you you know, have, have pondered this? Well, there's a little bit of a lag there, although uh, I think, you know, the FCC's uh, order, uh, the 2011 transformation order, had some data about how when you give rural consumers, you know, super fast internet, they are going to use more stuff. They're going to have the kind of rich content applications that Leo's talking about. And so part of the lag is that we just haven't been able to provide them those speeds yet. I mean, think in your mind, all right, 25.3, we know that's fast. We've been hearing about how that's fast. What percentage of urban Americans have access to 25.3 right today? Think about that. Think of whatever percentage in your mind. It's actually 96%. I mean, 25.3 is almost ubiquitous in urban America. So we, sh we shouldn't be surprised that culturally they've gotten more comfortable uh, with using more bandwidth. You know, rural folks are really smart and they're really resourceful. If they weren't resourceful, they would not have been able to survive out on the prairie of South Dakota. And so uh, as we are able to continue to expand those kind of networks, I think you're going to see the adoption. And it, it's got the possibility to really help transform rural America. Well, it's nice to say that I have 100 by 100, but tell me what I'm going to do with that. What is it more valuable exactly. to me than 4.1? And if I don't have an application that demands that higher capacity that I value and I'm willing to pay for, why am I going to pay for it? And I think as an industry, we're doing better than we have, but we still are not very good spokesmen for the capabilities of our networks and what we can provide and why it really benefits you to have higher speed. It's the sales and marketing that we need to get back to. We still have 5,000 customers who have just telephone with us. And yet, and yet we have grown. I don't want to say if you build it, they will come. But we're kind of seeing that because for the first time in the last three years, we have had a net increase in customers in an area where no one's moving in. 
so as we build out new areas and start letting the customers know that the service is there, uh, we had 166 new telephone wireline customers last year. Yeah, yeah that's, that's uh, tied to when you buy internet, you have to buy a phone, thanks to the FCC. But, you know, the fact is, that's people, we, we haven't had new industry come in, we haven't had anything except that we've built a broadband network and people are seeing the value of it. And we see the uh, working from home, you were talking about uh, younger people staying or coming back, and I see uh, uh, tech support jobs that they're doing over our broadband network. I see medical coding jobs where they don't have to drive to Nashville anymore to go to work. They can do their coding from home over the broadband network. So we see, you know, it's not a, a huge rush to everyone. We have jobs and now you can stay home, but we definitely see improvement in both areas. One thing that's been um, Hudson's done over its more than 50 years of existence uh, is do a lot of uh, it's called scenario development, which has been very important for thinking about things which are uncertain and uh, and these largely been in sort of um, foreign policy. What you know the what ifs, what if this country did this or that that kind of thing. But thinking about scenario development in th this world seems one of the questions is, are we at a plateau for speed and demand kind of thing, uh, or are there um, are there uses that we don't know about yet? You know, immersive reality kind of, of things, which are are either um, sort of fun kind of things, which sort of consumers buy as as act as things of pleasure, or they have um, there's economic activity tied to them, maybe some kind of engineering kind of thing. That so this is trying to just get a sense of, well, are we looking at a plateau, or are we going to go be, beyond that? You know, looking backwards you would say that it's always going to be going up. Because when I think about the fact that a, uh, what was the National Science Foundation in 1991 trying to develop as the most capacious network it could, it was thinking about um, 45 uh, Mbps. That was their idea of, this is going to take care of you know, all the computer scientists and the physicists and everything. And now there are. Um, Households in Nancy's surface area, which have more service, which have faster something available, than the National Science Foundation said, what we as a country need to have for our, our most consent. So if you, that would sort of say it's going to just go off uh, infinitely or not. But Leo, for example, seems to be a voice of, well, you've got to be showing people that there's something they're going to want by that. And maybe we need to have more technologists here, but, but as far as what people are going to do in the industry, it has to do with expectations. And so I'd just like to go through the panel just to hear a sense of, of um, expectations about what the future is going to be on the demand side. Leo, start, and we'll come back this way. Who knows? Uh, the reality is, is it, you know, it begets itself. In Moore's law was supposed to stop. Moore's law is where computing power doubles every 18 months or so. And that was supposed to stop 20 years ago, and it's not stopped. I mean, you know, the capacity that we need and the uses of that capacity I don't know what would stop it. And when you start to talk about things like autonomous cars and all the applications of, uh, and manufacturing of, of autonomous uh, applications, um, someone told, was told uh, I heard say, there's today there's 45,000 lines of code in every car. That's nothing compared to what it's going to be when you start to include all of these other applications. Where's all that data? Where's all that transfer speed going to come from? It's uh, The network is going to continue to grow to meet those demands. And who knows exactly what the applications are, but I believe they'll be there. I mean, even today, we, didn't, we couldn't have foresaw 10 years ago what we're doing today. Nancy? You know, Qualcomm, a company called Qualcomm has a, a project going on that uh, I think it's $10 million to the company who invents a tricorder from Star Wars, you know, the health monitor. 
and uh, they have extended it another year because the people that are, all these companies that are trying to invent it haven't quite finished. But when you think about tricorders and wearable monitors and wearable things, healthcare things to do telemedicine, uh, it, we're just not even there yet. There's so much ahead of us, I think, on, in that area that's, that broadband will be used for in telemedicine. Well, we, really uh, need, we really need to get it before the Klingons do. Well, exactly. So yes, or the Borg. <laughs> right, yeah, right. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and then you also think about, uh, have you ever seen a hologram ex uh, working yet? I mean, I've sat in a demonstration where a, a gentleman comes across on a, a piece of glass and it looks like he's, uh, you say, well, that's a teleprompter. And he's in London, he starts talking to you, and you're in a classroom. And the next thing you know, within 30 seconds, you don't even realize that he's in London. It's, he's there because it's a hologram. And, you know, all of those kinds of things that, you know, are, are to come. And I think about education and what that could do. I could have a French teacher teaching our high school from Paris. I could do all kinds of things like in the school system where we live that uh, our kids don't have access to a lot of things that, except through the Internet or broadband, services that, that maybe some children in other areas do. Yeah, I mean, there's absolutely not going to be a plateau. I mean, I'll tell you, I, I've, I've got two wonderful uh, sons. I actually have three sons, but only two of them are wonderful. Um, <laughs> and it doesn't vary by day. <laughs> right, no, that's right. That's the real joke. So, <clears throat> so I'm, I'm uh, cooking up a pan of brownies, uh, and my middle child is there, and I'm cutting them small. So I ask Ben, you know, Ben, how many brownies do you want? And he says, well, how many do you have, right? I mean, what a, what a quintessential American question, right? I mean, the Ford Mustang has 430 horsepower. Nobody needs that, right? And if they came out with a car that had 530 horsepower, half the Ford Mustang owners would be like, I need that one, right? I, I'm, not, I'm not nervous at all about us filling up this network. It is going to happen. And in fact, it's happening today. You know, Netflix is not new technology anymore, right? You know, so their standard definition, they want you to be able to have three meg to pull down. Their high def, they want you to be able to have five. Their ultra HD, which is increasingly becoming kind of the go-to, uh, you know, streaming, increasing numbers, 25 meg. It, I mean, a lot of us can imagine three different people in a home trying to pull down that Netflix stream, right? Well, that's 75 meg. And then what if you've got the Internet of Things and a home automation going? I mean, you very quickly get to 100 meg, and that is today. That requires no new invention. That requires no new innovation. And, uh, you know, you mentioned, you know, looking ahead and there's so much uncertainty. I mean, I get what you're trying to say. I don't think there's that much uncertainty. I think we know two fundamental truths. Consumers are going to be hungrier, much hungrier, for connectivity tomorrow than they were yesterday. And that companies who are aggressive and smart and hardworking providing it to them, are going to be successful. Now, I don't know if that means 1,100 study areas or 700 companies or 500 companies, but people who really deliver what the consumers want are going to find a, a real place in this country. Surely people in Washington tend to be net pessimistic. They're the more of that plateau people. So this is your last, everybody else is going for the, no, let's keep, it's going to go up. So this is your last chance to give the plateau a support. Uh, I am support. totally, the glass is half full. Okay. Um, I, I completely agree with everything everybody said. And I couldn't believe that you didn't mention that your kids are also doing Xbox gaming, which, mm -hmm. you know, when you start thinking about what is, you know, eating up the capacity and what you don't even know. Plus the mm -hmm. advent of, you know, all you have to do is go to a CES show 
and it's kind of like the dream world for, um, it used to be kind of the dream world for those folks who, who like to play with new toys. It is now just the place to go to see what the next step and the evolution of the American economy is. And I, you, you think about the TV sets, so you talk about the streaming and the HD. Once you start putting in these, you know, 4D television sets, um, you know, that alone will, will suck your 100 megs. So I, I tend to think that we're just on an upper trajectory, and I, I don't see where it comes down. And I think that's, I think that creates real opportunities. And I think that really actually um, makes the world, you know, a very, very small place. Thank you for your advice on how to shape our, shape our scenarios. Let's um, do the dangerous thing and see, go to our audience for questions and see if we've got anybody out there who wants to, um, uh, wants to be, we're still looking for somebody to support the plateau hypothesis as opposed to ever upward kind of thing. Um, but we're glad to go on to um, other topics as well. We've got um, folks here from Hudson who've got microphones. And if you uh, want to ask a question, please wait for the microphone to get to you because anybody who's participating via the webcast will have no idea what you've asked until, until, until we can get that uh, microphone in front of you. And you get to choose from the over-exuberance of Shirley and Dusty, the smiley face of Nancy, or grumpy Leo. So you get that. <laughs> But even Leo thought the capacity yeah, was never ending. No, I feel bad for Leo. He's been pigeonholed here by Hans. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, capital I say no a lot to clients. So. <laughs> yeah, right. Capital allocation is tough. Yeah. Yeah, tough. You know, if you're not willing to say no, you shouldn't be a capital allocator. That's my thought. Uh, Quick question. Uh, Leo, you're a young guy, so you wouldn't have been around in 1949 when Truman opened up the REA Act for telephone lending. What's to, it took maybe 15, 20 years for most of rural America to be covered by telephone voice circuits. What's different today, and are we on that same 15, 20-year trajectory for, for well, broadband? And, um, no, I would say it's going to accelerate because the demand is going to force it to accelerate. There's policy issues both at the state and federal level, national security issues, just pure consumer, the consumer demand issues. I think it will accelerate. I do believe, though, the capitalist up here, I don't know, I can't say, we know we have a Republican, we actually have two Republicans, but I'm the capitalist Republican too, is I have to be financially incented to build it. And I'm concerned that our, our regulators and legislators do not understand that you have to consent someone to build it so they can get a reasonable return. It doesn't have to be a great return, a reasonable return. The whole, you know, the, thank God for the RUS, the whole reason we have utility systems around the uh, country is because someone incented someone to build it. Now, whether they, they were a cooperative or a commercial company, they, they had a clear path to how they were going to get paid back over time with a reasonable return. That's, that's gone by the wayside. And that will, that will be the thing that stifles uh, development is the economic incentive. If you put that back in there, it will absolutely happen quickly. And I also wonder if, if everybody who goes to the Hill um, talk about, about the um, uh, the, the good side of, of rural broadband should take a banker with them to explain why they were not going to make loans to particular kind of uh, a particular kind of projects like that to help them understand. Um, well, gosh, if it's so great, why isn't it happening? Um, to understand the realities of, of capital markets. 
And that, if I could just add, yes. that has been the damper of having regulatory uncertainty. This industry's had a lot of regulatory uncertainty since the transformation order came out from the FCC in 2011. And to Leo's point, um, you know, here you are, and if you're a lender, even if you're RUS and you are a government entity, and your mission is to actually make these difficult loans, when you are sitting there saying, I'm not sure what, how these folks are going to recover their costs, I'm not sure what kind of policies are going to be in place that actually provides a path forward for investment, it has been a rough couple, of, you know, four or five years at this point in time. And the problem for that with investments um, and building these networks is that's a long time. We, we just talked about how accelerated everything is. When you've got folks who are a little bit nervous about that regulatory uncertainty and the, the ability to at least recover some of their costs, um, how do you incentivize people to build? So we've folks have some time to make up, assuming we can actually get to that place where um, they're going to feel more comfortable that I can build this because I know what the next step is going to be for me. So I and to that point, Shirley, RUS right now is saying before you submit a loan. You need to tell us what this new order is doing to your financials. And because most of us that are rate of return carriers don't know exactly what it's doing to us yet, it's very hard to move forward with loan applications and, and thinking, okay, well now we have some certainty, but we really don't yet. So if, if you, you know, every, all the carriers in here, uh, I believe, are probably rate-based regulated. And what that means is you're entitled to three things. You're entitled to, based on the regulated investment you put in, you're allowed to recover that over a prescribed period of time. And that's usually been 20 to 25 years. You're allowed to recover expenses in order, certain expenses in order to maintain that investment. And you're allowed to uh, recover a reasonable return on that investment. Um, those are the three components of rate-based regulation. Well, if you look at the orders, both on the state and federal side, it's, it's severely challenging those now. We're going to have caps on our operating expenses, which, you know, it costs a lot of money to run these networks out there. These people can tell you how much it costs. Um, your investment's expensive. It's not unheard of to have $4,500 to $5,000 per subscriber invested just to, for the pleasure of charging $25 a month for local voice service. Um, and, and, and so how are we going to continue to incent that? The rate of return's been knocked down. As a cost of money person, I could probably justify why our rate of return should be 18 or 19 percent when you think the risk uh, issue that's now entered our market because, you know, someone could pop up a tower and take off a good piece of our business. Someone can put up, you know, some sort of other, um, uh, uh, satellite or other base system. The competitive pressures are huge today, but yet, we have a mandate they have to provide service, and we cannot, you know, and be Leon, unreasonable about it. We've had this discussion before because I look at my mandate as a cooperative, which is to serve everyone. So no one gets to get better coverage, get better service, or better care than anyone else, and I don't charge one more than I charge the other one. And then when Leo and I talk and he says that, you go, okay, well, I'm not physically responsible if I go build to that one, which is 20 miles from nowhere, but yet I'm not a good steward of being a cooperative if I don't give them the same service I give someone else. It's a very, it's hard. How many years of certainty, or what's this, you know, uncertainty refers to time. How many columns in that spreadsheet, how many years are, you, are, are at risk there? Well, theoretically, we have 10 years of some sort of certainty, but I'm not sure we'll get to 10 years. But, but, but uh, as a capital allocator, what are you worried about? Is it, is it the kind of thing those future years beyond, say, 10, um, they're discounted present value, isn't, is, is, so you can, if well, you know what the rule is like in 10 years, that's good enough to make an investment, or that's still not good enough? It used to, it used to be um, 14 to 15 years on most notes, um, and there's some lenders in here, so I won't, I won't name names. Now, we keep on pressuring them to go back to that, but really, if you can get beyond eight years anymore, 
and then you have to say, okay, you either refinance it or you you know have to have a huge balloon payment that you're going to have to raise the equity to pay off. Um, it's compressed largely. So if you can get past, you have to build your plans to really be significantly um, cash positive or cash flowing uh, within probably five years, five to six years. And that's a tough, given the capital requirements of this group, that's a tough, tough thing to do. You know what, Hans, there, I mean, there's always been and there's always going to be a certain amount of, you know, regulatory uncertainty. And so, I mean, I do think with this order and, you know, I think we're getting closer to an area where people Wait, can I think you're apologizing for regulators again. No, no, no. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I'm uh, just being defensive. Uh, you know, the reality is there are always going to be companies that have analysis paralysis, right? There are always going to be a hundred reasons not to do something. But we know where that leads, right? We know that if you don't eventually get that next generation network out there, that you, number one, you're failing your fiduciary responsibility to your members or to your communities. And secondly, there's going to come a day where you're just going to have to take those keys into the Public Utilities Commission and drop them off. Because if you're not going to build, then you need to start figuring out what your hospice care looks like. Now, that doesn't mean you build imprudently. It doesn't mean that you don't really rely on this firm kind of financials we're talking about. But it means that you've got to be aggressive in asking every single day, how do we get this done, as opposed to why can't we get it done? Well, and again, I think you need to realize there are people out there willing to pay us for services we provide. We're just in our own way about how we're going to get it to them or we're going to charge them for it. And I think there, there's no question in the market out there, the market capacity and the ability to make a good business case. But you have to, you have to scale your business to that business case. We can no longer do things the way we did 10 years ago because we're not incented the same way. I know that we are looking at my management team is made the, the uh, our objective is to figure out what can we do, what else can we do for our customers that will bring in revenue that we can become more self-sufficient so that we don't have to rely on it as much because we're very dependent. <coughs> it's, it's almost half my revenue to what I get back in recovery and access charges. So we're looking at, so what is it we're missing? What can we provide? What services? Can we, what can we do outside our area? Um, what can we do to, that is relevant, relevant to what, who we are and uh, try to be more self-sufficient? That's, it's very difficult. Another question? Um, the mic's already here. Oh, okay. All right. Uh -huh. Um, good morning. My name is Jennifer Emo, and I'm the federal director of the National Association of Towns and Townships. Um, and we represent about 10,000 communities around the country, most of which are located in very rural areas. Um, I can't send emails to a significant number of my members. Um, we have a website, but they don't look at it because they don't have the proper access. Um, I've got a, a, a board member who's on dial-up, so he can't download my PDFs. <laughs> um, so, you know, I feel like I'm operating in the ice ages. Um, and, you know, what they ask, and of course one of our, and we actually have a fly-in next week, and I've met with your folks already, but um, we have a fly-in next week, and one of the biggest issues that we're talking about is the importance of broadband deployment. Um, you know, dig once policies within, you know, legislative bills in, on the Hill are great, but ultimately, I'm talking about not just underserved, but those um, that are woefully unserved. And when I have a community say, what is your, what can you do to help us get access to broadband to keep our young talent here, um, to educate our kids? I mean, there's, 
you know, of course, school districts in, in uh, rural Minnesota who don't have, you know, snow days anymore because they would have way too many. And so they have to do their work from home, but then there are kids that can't do that work from home. Um, I, I don't know the answer. I mean, at this point, what we're doing next week, frankly, is we're saying we support dig once policies and please join the Rural Broadband Caucus. And that's all I've got. And um, I guess my, it, it's, it's, it's a commentary, but also a question because I know that getting to those underserved areas and then, of course, the unserved areas is a very expensive endeavor. Um, but we're talking about local governments that don't have the money to incentivize these carriers to come in. Um, so we're sort of at a standstill, and um, 11 years later, I still can't email a number of my members. Let, let me just, I, oh, go ahead. Oh. I really want to jump in on that one. So um, because obviously, you know, one of the things we find from an economic perspective is independent carriers serve their communities. A lot of your folks probably have the misfortune of being in a larger company area where there's no economic incentive for them to actually build out to their rural portions because, frankly, they're going to monetize where they actually have the density of subscribers. There's a, just a couple of policy things that jump off at the top of my head. One of the things is that the FCC is considering the Connect America Fund to auction process. And that is where the large carriers who went earlier than the independent carriers did through the um, USF reform, will have the opportunity in the next, uh, I, I think it's like a five-year window, to decide where they're going to build and where they're not going to where they're going to take universal service, where they're not going to take it. When they choose where they're not going to go, that's going to open it up to other entities, and hopefully um, independent telcos will have the opportunity, among, among other folks, to come in and say, you know what, they're not going to take that USF support to build out there, but I'll take that community. I'm going to bid to go ahead and build broadband out to get that universal service support to help me do so, but um, to fill in those gaps. So I think that's one thing that I see coming down the pike pretty quickly. The other thing that we actually had submitted to um, the president when they had created the Broadband Opportunity Council a few months ago, they were looking at different ideas, how to integrate all the agencies. One of the suggestions we had was, NTIA, why don't you create a clearinghouse? Why don't you create a clearinghouse that tells us where are those communities that don't have broadband, that would like broadband, um, that are feeling kind of left out of this whole evolution? And I would love nothing more than to share that list with my 900 carriers and say, what do you have? You know, can we make this a broadbandmatch.com? You know, how can you literally connect people to where the need is? I look at, I look at, I've got a couple hundred folks who are selecting into neighboring communities because those communities have been calling them saying, you're, I see your broadband, I smell your broadband, please bring it over here. Um, so I do think there's some interesting things that we could be doing. Now, they chose not to go with that approach. I don't understand it. But I still think there's some opportunities to really say, where are those areas? And let's figure out. Because one of the things we have seen that I think is really exciting is in the past, people assumed you had to be nearby a community to provide them broadband. We've got a case up in Minnesota where we have an electric co-op that is now being served broadband to their customers by a co-op that is 200 miles away. You don't need to be contiguous. There's ways to do it. So I think there's a few other things that we can add to your list of things to talk about. Okay. Just to point out in our report, to go, uh, one of the hard things that's doing to deal with, with this issue as far as making numbers uh, come out 
is um, covered in, in, in box one, rural broadband industry, uh, uh, in the report, but the, the issue of what called rural by a definition that says um, the census, uh, OMB definition of rural, uh, not <laughs> what is a rural, it's not the same areas that are there going to be rural broadband carriers. Um, so you can have people who are violate the lines in either direction. You can have, there might be a, one of the uh, rural broadband carriers we mentioned, this turns out to be because, uh, well, Nancy's an example of this, of where she's a rural broadband carrier, but because the Nashville metropolitan area has been growing to da, um, one of her counties is in, counts as being part of the urban economy in, in that sense. Um, and there are also places where there are areas that are rural, but um, they're not served by a rural carrier. They're, they're served by um, one of the other companies. And it's fascinating, the idea that you could um, just, you know, let's, let's sort of do the smash.com kind of thing of, of willing buyer, willing seller. Some people want to get out of it. Why not um, get, get them, let them get in that much faster? Um, that would be a, a, a different world than we've seen. And as, when we did this before, an event of rural Brabant, the disproportionate complaints come from people who are, they view themselves as being in rural areas, but they're actually not served by a rural carrier. Mm -hmm. And those seem to be the, where the, um, if we're running our 1-800 customer complaint desk here in these sessions, that's what we've, we've gotten. Um, another question. From the back, who's there? Who's there? Hello, um, my background is in rural electrification, doing the last mile, but internationally. So I'm learning this space. In my organization, we're working with universal service funds, but internationally. Um, and to follow up on Shirley's comment, I, since I am learning, so I'm just going to throw out some vocabulary words, I'd like the panel to discuss um, some of those disruptive technologies of TV white space, dynamic spectrum, getting to what Shirley is saying. We work with the Universal Service Fund uh, regulators overseas to do some geomapping on where there are gaps and then putting out tenders to fill those gaps. So again, since I'm learning, I, I want to hear from you what, what you're um, applications are within the U.S. and what your thoughts are going forward. And by, uh, I mean, are you talking about what type of infrastructure is being deployed or what kind of applications are, are being carried over that network? Or, or when you're talking about applications, you're talking about actually submittals to government funders? I'm looking, uh, we're looking at TV white space, we're looking at satellites, we're looking at some of the disruptive technologies to meet that last mile, but in the broadband area. And since generally speaking, um, U.S. federal government. So we look domestically then to tr sort of transfer uh, experiences and then localize it for countries to fit the specific needs of that country. So since I'm trying to learn from you all what, you know. But, but also the, within the context of a universal service fund kind of notion of there's going to be some effort to provide some level of service someplace, but, but, but more open-minded about the nature of the technology that enters than, than we might have had in this. Yeah, so for example, the woman in the front who just asked that question, how do, can I serve my customers? That's what the government is asking us. That's what the mayors of those counties are feeding up to the uh, government entities within the countries that we serve to say, how can we meet those needs? And so we're looking at these other technologies, we're looking at new policies, but how, how are we doing it here such that we can bring those experiences overseas? And I would say this, I mean, the future-proof option, the gold standard is fiber. Right? I mean, we talk about we don't know exactly what's going to happen with demand and what kind of speeds are we going to need. The other technologies that you can deploy are just not future-proofed. You know, 
I think that's a real liability long term. So I think fiber, fiber, fiber. Now, that being said, there are clearly some areas we've got to get back to the prudency of business case and, and governmental support. You know, I would affiliate myself with the FCC's worldview on this point. I mean, they, in essence, have thrown out satellite because they've said the real world needs real-time applications, and a latency of more than 100 milliseconds um, is it, it's problematic. This, this conversation had taken place 10 years ago. Yeah. Satellite, there would have been some people in the room who might have come and said, um, well, satellite is an alternative to building a physical network, right? And, and, and those... And, be good, give another sentence or two and, about why those people aren't in the room. Anymore. And there are going to be instances where maybe that's all you can do, but I think that's got to be a tertiary option, right? I mean, I think the primary option is fiber. And then, you know, again, the FCC's worldview is that mobile wireless is uh, a complement to rather than a replacement of the kind of broadband networks we've been talking about. And I agree with that as well. I think you need both. I don't think you're fully connected to the modern economy unless you have both. And so I would sort of say satellite and mobile, you know, there's a place for them. But uh, if fiber doesn't work and you really have to find another option, I do think, you know, terrestrial fixed wireless is going to fill a role in the intermediate term. And just because of financial necessity. But long term, that's not the network we want to be running. It, it really depends on where you want to draw the line as far as what is what is. Broadband, because broad, you know there's a spectrum there and there's speeds, and it's just a matter of where you where you want to draw the line. That's that's the sense that I have, not being a technologist, but uh, you know it's a balancing act. Um, the technologies that uh, are disruptive, or technology always seems to find a way. I mean, the unlicensed spectrum today, the uses and what you can do with it compared to five years ago is just tremendously different. Uh, and you can make business cases out of that. Now, if we have to feel compelled to build fiber to everyone, like the mandate that Nancy has, you know, you're, you're running the risk of jeopardizing the entire entity by that economic decision. So you have to be willing to look at how can I provide the service I believe I need to provide with the best technology available. And that technology moves all the time. So you have the engineering firms like Vantage Point and others that you know, are continuously looking at the different applications and how you can apply them and what they are and what speeds you can get and how easily you know, do you have uh, problems with, with foliage and, and the, the geography for the, for the propagation of that particular technology, whatever. I mean, we, we have to be willing to look at our deployments and getting to the end goal by every means we can because it will be you know, the, in the best interest of everybody to do that. We, we've got clients that are using uh, copper that are getting 50 meg speed very easily with uh, compression technologies. I mean, you just have to be willing to say, how can I get there and look at all the alter alternatives? And it's, it's very tough, I imagine, because it's a very fluid technology space in terms of what might have been true for um, as, as evaluate a project now 18 months ago, now from now, um, the engineering capabilities are evolving. I don't know, uh, what do you see, Dusty, in, in this area? You're, you're sort of like the, a moderate, a mediator between what's available technologically and what, what a, a carrier decides to do. Well, you know, certainly Vantage Point helps companies deploy a lot of wireless networks, but when you actually start talking about infrastructure in the ground, it's been a decade since we've done, you know, a green space DSL type development. I mean, we do 8,000 miles of designing and deploying, you know, networks, and they're all, they're all fiber. I mean, if you're talking about actual linear networks. Uh, now, that being said, if you're just doing a little edge out, yeah, absolutely. You can get some really good speeds when you're willing to take that legacy network and edge it out or, 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 or uh, you know, fix it up so that you can better serve people within uh, an existing network. But as far as things that are being built tomorrow, you know, tomorrow, 
there hasn't been that much evolution. I mean, for a long time now, fiber's been the gold standard, and it's only if you can't afford the gold standard that I think you need to go to some of these, I would call them the inferior infrastructures. Another question? Ms. White, I was wondering if, uh, if you've done any health outcome studies to determine the difference it's made for the people in Kentucky and Tennessee having access to this, uh, to this network. And then I think you mentioned the word stimulus. This was Recovery Act, Broadband Technology Opportunity Program. American Reinvestment Recovery Act, Understood. yes. And, yes. and just maybe a sentence or two where you would be but for those federal funds. Well, we would not be where we are today if it hadn't been for those funds. We were lucky enough to um, be awarded a half-grant, half-loan, $50 million. And that is what allowed us to build what we've done. Um, with that in our U.S., I, I don't know what we would do without the two. We, we did go ahead and get another loan to complement that. Uh, at the time, but yes, it was it was definitely the Reinvestment Recovery Act uh, stimulus program and our U.S. loans. And as far as uh, do we have any studies about the effectiveness of telehealth yet? No, we don't. Uh, we are working. I mean, we see some things. Our, our local hospital, for example, is connected. It's a it's a critical access hospital. And for those of you who don't know what that is, it's a small rural hospital that has 24 beds or less. And uh, Ours is, again, it's very small. It's hard to get doctors to come to rural America. Uh, I've, I've, said, I've asked the state people, well, why can't you get people who grew up here to go to school and then come back? And, and they said, well, we do, and, and they'll promise us and we'll help pay for their school, but then they'll meet a girl and she'll say, I'm not moving out there. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah. But, but we actually have in uh, our hospital as connected to Vanderbilt Hospital and also HCA TriStars Hospital. We have a, uh, what we call the robot, uh, which allows when someone comes into the emergency room in our critical access hospital and they are stroke patient potentially, they have our um, ER is connected with the neurologist on, on staff that's there on duty at Vanderbilt. And he can immediately see what's going on with the patient and can tell us if it's a real stroke, put him on the helicopter and send him to Nashville. If it's a real stroke, but there's no union putting them and their family through it because they can't recover, or if it's not a stroke at all. So instead of having to send the patient in an ambulance or in the helicopter, um, you can take, do, take more steps closer to home. Uh, on the, the, what we were doing with HCA TriStar is behavioral, and we have the connections with them in our emergency room that allows if, if someone comes in who is with depression or behavioral issues, and that seems to be a huge issue for the health community these days. Uh, it allows them to connect to a, a specialist at TriStar in Nashville as well. So these are both, they're not used nearly to the amount that they will be in the future. We, we see that sometimes the doctors are, are resistant to it. They don't know how it works yet. I mean, it's a, but ours are starting to use it. Uh, we have a clinic uh, in, in our service area that is also trying to get a grant to build a, um, a telehealth room so that we have so many people that are uh, aged, um, senior citizens uh, in their 70s, 80s, and veterans who live 50 miles, 50, 60 miles from the nearest veterans hospital who don't really want to have their kids take off from work to drive them to a specialist in Nashville or to the VA in Murfreesboro or Nashville. So we're trying to get a room built for them that the person they know there at the local clinic can sit in the, the room with them and meet with a specialist at the wherever 
and talk with them because our, our, we find that the people who live there are not really trusting of doctors they don't know. And they turn around, they might get uh, to the specialist and then come back and say, well, here's what the specialist said, should I do this? You know, so we're trying to help accomplish some things to overcome those issues as well. And, and we're pretty excited. We also, I would just add that a couple of weeks ago, we co-hosted with the White House a summit on rural telehealth. And um, we're pretty excited. We actually, everybody who was part of that, and there was a huge, you know, it was rural carriers, it was VA, HHS, uh, tribal entities, um, Nashville, um, the, the Vanderbilt uh, telehealth folks. Um, and we're all kind of inputting back to the White House as of last Friday some of our thoughts and suggestions on next steps, but a huge area of potential. Um, so I'm excited to see what this administration can try to push in the next few months. Another question. Um, we'll go back. This is a really an outstanding panel. Well, three of them. Leo's not so hot usually, but... Um, <laughs> But one of the things that uh, Jessica set a tone for this right off the bat, that this isn't about rural America, it's about America. And then one of the things that we do as, a, as, a, as an industry, a rural industry, is we tend to talk about the 40% of rural America served by the independent industry. And we, we don't really deal with the issues as brought up by the lady from the towns and cities. So, um, Shirley, one of the things aimed at you is how do we break through? You're making some traction now late in the second term of a president is showing some interest in this. But where is the political outrage on, among numerous governors that the Universal Service Fund is being cut back or the great funds that are, that are the history of wall-to-wall -wall coverage in South Dakota, great place in North Central, but they're being robbed essentially to pay for broadband deployment in the rest of the country and you're playing defense trying to help your customers or your com companies deal with the attacks on Universal Service funding when the dialogue should be about how do we get all of rural America served? How do we get the Googles and the Netflixes to, to pay for infrastructure? How do we set policy that way? It's so refreshing to hear someone outside our industry asking you good questions because we send to kind of get into the nuts and bolts of uh, universal service funding discussions as opposed to broad policy things. But what I'm leading up to is here's great information. How do you build high-powered, high high-interest uh, among policymakers, governors, senators, where are the people that should be fighting for rural America? It's certainly not being discussed on the, in the presidential campaigns. So how do you take this and stop fighting a, a, a battle against attacks on your funding, but essentially get people to embrace how do we really serve rural America? So it's a really powerful question, Andy, and I think there's a couple of things. I think, one, that's why I think the, the value of this study is so critical, because what we find is that rural legislators understand it a little bit more. They, they live there. Um, they know what their challenges are. How do you get those folks who kind of serve some of those other, you know, the more urban parts of, of the United States, understanding the economic impact, and maybe this is the way to tie them in to then share this is what it's going to take to actually build broadband everywhere, and this is what we have to do with our policies. It, the hypocrisy a little bit of, of what's going on struck me in the last couple of weeks because the FCC came out with their USF reform, voted it out through the, the FCC, long-awaited. Um, hopefully, we can work within the parameters of what did come out. But the program was capped for high-cost carriers, and there's no inflationary increase. Um, that will be allocated. It's a $2 billion fund, essentially. 
And the very next day, there was a vote to expand the Lifeline program, which is basically universal service for low-income Americans. Very important program, but this program um, increased substantially, has an inflationary um, uh, increase. In addition to the E-rate program, which again, very important program, was able to get an increase and an inflationary factor. But at the end of the day, if you don't have an underlying rural broadband network, you can do lifeline and E-rate till the cows come home, literally, but you're not going to be able to reach folks. So it is that contradiction of the, the sufficiency, um, the equality of these programs, uh, the ability to say, um, you know, you, you need to make sure that if you're really committed, you've, you've got to make sure there's enough resources to get the job done. So hopefully, you know, we look at, at this study as hopefully a platform to take that the next step. We'll come forward uh, here for one last question, and then we'll ask um, Shirley to help pull it all together. I, I think this is a question for Dusty, the regulator, and maybe Leo, the capitalist. <laughs> uh, there seems, as an operator, there seems to be too much undue pressure on broadband paving the way of the network. Um, the decay of voice, and then the other method is video, and we touched on uh, Netflix. But in my opinion, the video model's busted. And in, in dealing with programmers, nothing's gotten any cheaper out of Los Angeles and, and New York. Uh, maybe once in a while the entertainment in Washington is, is cheaper, but and no cost. <laughs> but I guess to Dusty and, and the capitalist, do you see, I think Chairman Martin went to the a la carte model with video. But we need help with the video side to help finance these networks. And it's got too much undue pressure, I believe, on the broadband side. And there really isn't any money in it. And in many cases, we're upside down on the video side by the end of the year because of the costs coming from programmers. So do you see any light at the end of the tunnel of where we're going with maybe over the top to help finance and incent networks with video? Well, you know, you could probably tell I like to be the happy warrior, right? Super optimistic. But, you know, I guess I'll put my frowny face on just a little bit. I mean, I do think some of these disruptive delivery mechanisms like over the top are going to be some, uh, relieve some pressure on the margins. But what you're really talking about is having some assistance from these edge providers and paying for the network. And I think conceptually we can talk about how well that could work, but the reality is there is no appetite for that in the political space. And part of it is because uh, the edge providers are cool and hip and fun and everybody, Google, I like Google, right? Netflix, I love my Netflix. Whereas the people who own the network are villains like Comcast and Time Warner, right? And so, now of course, the rurals own a lot of the network too, but that's not, you know, there's just a lot more Comcast and Time Warner out there than there are, you know, Wilkes Communications, right? And so, certainly at the FCC with the open internet order, I mean, they've made it pretty clear who's paying for the network. Uh, and it's not going to be the edge providers. And in Washington, D.C., I think when you hear a lot of the rhetoric about who's going to pay for the network, nobody is saying that Google needs to pay more. And so I'm, not, I'm optimistic that at some point we're going to be able to pay for these networks. I'm pretty pessimistic that the people on the edge are going to do very much to help with that. You know, video is just an application, just as voice is an application. And we're, we're not going to be able to do much with controlling the programming cost increases 
Uh, we see it year in, year out. We're, we're resistant, for whatever reason, as local carriers to pass those cost increases to the consumer, uh, so we eat them, putting more pressure on our margins. I think we have to control the expense side, with, and over the top, I think, will allow us to to get a little bit away from the closed system that is broken, I agree with you, and let us be a little bit more innovative with programs that are designed specifically for over-the-top, uh, custom um, local programs that carriers can put together and find value to those people that really want to see it. You know, until we get contribution reform, I agree, we're not going to get any more money uh, for the network side. It's just not going to be there. We're capped at $2 billion, and we're going to have to make the best of it. And unfortunately, because it's capped, every year there's going to be you know, people that move up and down within that. You, know, you may get more money this year, but it's coming at the expense of another local carrier. Until we fix contribution reform, that's not going to change. So we really have to focus on the sales side of whatever we're trying to produce to get the revenue that way and the cost of providing that, that service. And over the top, I think we'll allow companies to at least become cash supportive, if not margin positive. We've had a lot of strands here, and it's more than my mind can get its around. So I've asked Shirley to try to pull it all together here for us now. Oh, that's a big task. Um, so I'm not sure I'm going to really be able to pull it all together because I think there's so many, so many things floating around and could have had another 20 folks up here sharing some of their same thoughts. I just want to actually give my um, sincere appreciation shout out to the Foundation for Rural Service, to the Hudson Institute, for, for actually putting together this powerful study. And I do think it's powerful. And to paraphrase Dusty, you know, using data, using stories, using politics to actually get out the importance of rural broadband and what it really means to everybody around here. NTCA members continue to build these incredibly robust networks. Their customers now have a sense of how important that is. We also know how important that is to the rest of the country. So I think there's one of the things that I, I look as a takeaway as I think the message about how valuable rural broadband is to the entire United States economy allows us to explore different ways to ensure that all Americans, regardless of where they reside, have access to broadband services in the future. And that is the power of, I think, what you all have done here today. So just sincere appreciation um, to everybody involved.